Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edin Davis and joining me this week, through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? Hey man, yeah, I'm oh, I'm all good. I'm still kind of getting into that weird like Happy New Year thing, people keep saying it to me mm-hmm. and I feel like that's a perfect excuse to uh, to kind of ride the, oh it's a new year, to talk about what we're going to talk about later in the episode. Because mm. it's still technically a new year. Although, what's yeah. the cutoff? I I think it's like the tenth or something. I think. Or oh, once your tree comes down, you can't say happy new year. Mm. I think it's borderline okay until the end of January. I think once you get to February, then you know, like Valentine's Day is just around the corner. Like, there's other holidays that are going to supersede it. Although, I suppose mm. in America, I guess the twenty first would be the cutoff point because then. That's like Martin Luther King Day. So that's like mm. a, a, the next big holiday is right upon you. Uh, at that point, you kind of really should move on to other things. Mm, it's, it's Burns Night on Friday. So yeah, that's a good point. But basically, any if, if people are saying Happy New Year when they see people for the first time that they haven't seen in a while in like February, that would be weird to me. Mm, yeah. So this is it. We can. That's it. We've no more good salutations for the year. It's just <laughs> downhill from here. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Before we get into our our topic, uh, which you alluded to, we'll kind of go through some news. It was a relatively quiet news week, I think, and for the most part, nothing terrible happened. Um, Not in film news. Uh, no. Uh, in in kind of British politics news, something aggressively ambiguous happened, <laughs> which are kind of, is kind of like the best thing you can say about anything involving Brexit. Mm. It's like it, there's a, it's like there's lots of pros and cons. It's a land of contrasts. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the best you can say. But in in film news, there was kind of not uh, film and television news. There wasn't really a huge amount. Um, completely awful, uh, which is nice. There just yesterday, uh, we found out that Leon Critch, who is a veteran of Pixar, someone who has directed or co-directed a load of their movies over the years, directed Toy Story Three and Coco, most notably, is leaving the company after twenty-five years, basically because he wants. To, in his kind of resignation, he said because he wants to spend a little more time with his family. He said, "I'm not leaving to go work for another company. I want to go and you know." spend more time doing things that aren't working what i presume are fairly ridiculous hours considering the amount of work and energy and effort that goes into making any pixar movie and he's been involved with pretty much all of them since the mid 90s so Mm. that's kind of uh, bittersweet because um i've really liked pretty much all the movies that he has worked on in some capacity. If you look at his credits, it's just a long list of classics or near classics. But at the same time, you know, you don't want someone to just get completely burnt out doing a thing, even if that's a thing that they truly love and have dedicated their time to. Yeah, it's interesting that he alluded to other projects, but then at the same time said, I'm 100% not going to be working for another studio. It was just like, what projects does he mean? Does he mean like, you know, putting the shed up in the garden or whatever? Like these like DIY projects. <laughs> but it's a real shame. Like he's, 
he's directed some of the the greats from mm. you know their their output and their output's pretty good. I, it seems to be like a, a period of real upheaval at Pixar. Because obviously John Lasseter has left um, under somewhat of a cloud, but has seemed to have landed on his feet. Uh, Skydance, whoever it is. Oh yeah, that was this week. Yeah, so fuck, fuck that guy. <laughs> yeah, connected. But yeah, so he's for those of you who don't know John Lasseter, who was put on gardening leave at Pixar because there was less. I suppose I don't want to kind of like uh, trivialize the kind of things that were said, but they didn't feel like allegations. They felt just like he had fostered this kind of uneasy atmosphere of like being a woman and working at Pixar. Mm. It felt like in a like inappropriate rather than just out and out gross, but still enough to not, you should not be the, the person who's leading a studio if you're going to act this way uh, and don't mm. expect any kind of pushback. But yeah, so he, he left Pixar and he was also head of Disney, Disney Animation Studios for a bit, or yeah, or had he had he taken a step back from that? He, I think he had he stepped down from that around at the same time he was, as you said, put on gardening leave, and mm, I yeah. I don't know if she is still in that role, but Jennifer Lee, who directed Frozen, took over his responsibilities as the ah. kind of the head of Disney Animation uh, okay. around about that time. But yeah, so he he went off for a bit and kind of. We were a bit quiet. We didn't really hear much from John Lasseter. But then all of a sudden this week, it sounds that he's going to take over Skydance Animation, hmm. running that. Which is, a, you know, if you leave one job under a cloud, why shouldn't you just instantly reinsert yourself at the very highest level uh, of a competitor? I mean, that doesn't really send a mixed message at all. Hmm. Yeah, it really points to the fallacy of the argument you know the me too has gone too far sort of thing because it really with the exception of you know like kevin spacey who isn't getting any jobs at the moment but that's very much an at the moment thing who knows where we're going to be in a year's time um but you know with the exception of a handful of people like a lot of the the, the men who have been accused of sexual assault or sexual harassment have for the most part landed on their feet they have mm-hmm. either been given other jobs or been allowed to work in other capacities or, you know, in the case of someone like Louis C.K., just been able to just kind of keep on trucking because they've got a big enough audience and some part of that audience is uh, morally uh, vapid in, in a very distressing way. Or they're just so, like like a Matt Lauer or a Charlie Rose, they're so rich, doesn't really matter. Like, mm-hmm. they can just go sit and complain and have try and make people feel sorry for themselves by being like you know my life's destroyed as i sit in my palatial uh apartment on central park or whatever you know so it it really does point to the fallacy of the argument that, that it has gone too far because you know it didn't stop someone who by many many accounts created a a, a atmosphere at pixar that was not friendly to women and who had inappropriate interactions with a lot of women working at Pixar mm-hmm. from like, as you said, just kind of sidling into after, after a, a period of several months, just siding, sliding right back into a job in a different company. Mm. And not like, you know, some weird kind of indie startup, you know, yeah, a fairly uh, major company, a fairly major company. Uh, yeah, It's been a bad week for, you know, one year ago at the golden globes, there was, you know, a Time's Up 
black dresses. Everyone seemed to be on board with this new message. And then one year later, they're giving a Golden Globe, effectively giving a Golden Globe to Brian Singer, mm, um, yeah. which is perhaps a backwards step. And we're going to find mm. out in like, in like two days, we're going to get Oscar nominations. And it fucking sickens me to know that like Bohemian Rhapsody is going to get nominated for stuff. And I mm. like full disclosure. I've still not seen the movie. I don't want to see the movie because of it's, you know, it's production history uh, yeah. and what's behind it. And like you and I had a conversation this week on WhatsApp about R. Kelly and in which mm. you said that, you know, when you were 16, you knew about R. Kelly and you were a fucking nobody from rural Leicestershire. Yeah. And, you know, like in essence, we're, no, we're like, we're nobodies and we know about Brian Singer. Yeah. So why the fuck do people not working with him know? Like, there's literally no excuse. Like, so uh, it kind of feels awful that we're probably going to go through this really awkward congratulatory period for something that really should be condemned, not congratulated. And, yeah, here we are. It does, in in kind of like talking about that just now, I was suddenly thinking, well, you know, like Woody Allen's made a movie which it's probably never going to see the light of day because no one seems to want to screen it. I was thinking, so at least like one person has been taken down by, by this in some way. But then I was thinking, you know, the, the other person, someone like a Charlie Rose, who's fairly old and you kind of wondering that the unfortunate truth, I think about the Brian Singer thing and the John Laster thing is as long as you can make money for companies, they're kind of willing to suffer the backlash. It seems like, and that's the thing with Brian Singer as well. Brian Singer makes commercially very successful movies and has for a very, very long time. So as long as he makes movies that make people money, he's probably still going to get hired, even though there is considerable evidence out there of wrongdoing on his part. And you kind of feel like if Kevin Spacey had been in a successful movie in the last 10 years, maybe... That would have his situation would be different, mm. uh, and, and it also goes to Weinstein as well. Like the fact that Weinstein had been on a downward slope and had lost a lot of his clout is. And this is something we said at the time when all the allegations were coming out about him. Like that seemed to be the case for why he what went down like surprisingly easily for someone who had been this kind of ogre of the film industry for twenty years. So yeah, it does. It does. It does all seem to be tied to profitability in a way that is yeah awful <laughs> and uh one of the many indictments of capitalism mm, you spoke too soon about it being a pleasant week for news we managed yeah. to find we managed to find an angle to uh <laughs> to come at it from that would that would uh, put paid to that yeah let's switch to a unabashedly good story so uh, which are so rare, but this one I think has been really brightening my day over the last kind of like two or three days. Uh, there is a, a YouTuber called H Bomber Guy, who is uh, someone who I'm a big fan of and uh, Emily's a big fan of as well. He makes videos about pop culture and kind of debunking the arguments of the alt-right and pseudoscientists and things like that. He's a very funny guy. He's a guy who has made some videos I really love. He does a, he did a great nearly two hour long uh, video essay about why Sherlock is terrible, which I watch surprisingly often considering how long it is because it's just really entertaining watching someone tear into Sherlock and point out all the various ways in which it's not very good. And he did a video 
a little while ago about speedrunning, you know, the art, I guess, of people playing through games and trying to complete them as quickly as possible. And as part of that, he sort of talked about the game Donkey Kong 64, which is a kind of notoriously hard game to speedrun because it has a million fucking items you have to collect in order to complete it and it takes an absolute age and at the end of that video he said you know what i never finished this game when i was a kid i'm going to do a charity stream where i'm going to sit here and play this thing all the way to completion collecting every single one of the 201 bananas the 2000 coins whatever you have to collect until it's done and he started doing that stream on friday to raise money for the charity mermaids which is a charity in the uk that provides help and support to trans and non-binary kids which was due to be awarded some funding from the National Lottery until a group of kind of anti-trans activists led by Graham Linehan kind of basically carpet-bombed the, the National Lottery with complaints until they put the funding under review. And so at the time that we're recording, that stream's been going on for 50 hours and they have raised $203,000. And that's just absolutely incredible like i said i'm a big fan of of harris and his work i think that he's a tremendously funny and smart and compassionate and empathetic guy and it has been i obviously haven't watched all 50 hours of it because i'm not a lunatic but i have been dipping in and out of the screen this the stream over the last day or so and it was really quite lovely happening to be on watching it at the moment when they hit 75,000 and he broke down into tears as he realised the enormity of what he had managed to accomplish. And obviously they've smashed through all their subsequent goals, but that that stream has been just an absolute delight to behold. Mm. And it's, yeah, it's this whole Linehan mermaids thing. I mean, it, it's just been distressing on many levels mm. and to see something positive coming out of it is pretty good but do, yeah we didn't need to get to this situation it's no. uh it's 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 you know a good thing but like what is wrong with people jesus mm. christ yeah but at the at the very least it's making the best out of a very bad situation which is a lot of people with at best misinformed views about what mermaids do causing them to very briefly not get funding like it seems that they'll get the national lottery funding anyway because it's you can very easily say oh no this was like a kind of astroturf style campaign it wasn't necessarily people coming from uh, arguing in good faith so they might still get that money and they'll get a lot of extra funding on top of it thanks to this stream so it kind of feels like we need kind of an adjunct of the streisand effect you know the idea of trying so hard for people not to notice something that they pay even more attention to it. Uh, you know, kind of Graham Linehan has really kind of pu pushed that idea even further by attempting to harm mermaids in this way. Uh, he has really brought attention to what they do and brought them a lot of, a lot more positive pressure, press, I would hope, and attention than they would have got otherwise. Mm -hmm. And really shined a light on... Um, uh, ironically, you know, shined a, a light on the struggles of trans people in a way that he would be furious about. Mm, and he is furious about it. Uh, mm. Let me let me tell you, he hasn't stopped being furious about it for quite some time now, which is mad given his the fact that he's a a, a TV writer mm. and not 
an expert on such things. And yeah. do you know, what I like there's there's always this point at which like I'm a fairly self-aware person, mm-hmm. and in a social situation, I'm I'm pretty much good at like pretty good at determining like oh shit I've I've said something that has soured the mood, mm-hmm. uh, or I have you know I have kind of I should probably stop talking. <laughs> you know what I mean? I should just go and do something else because this is, and maybe I'll apologize for this later. But mm-hmm. the the staggering lack of self awareness that you know he he's just there, just pounding hate into his keyboard, and you know frothing at the mouth like all day, every day. Like mm-hmm. I I unfollowed him a long time ago. Yeah, but then as everyone should, as you, everyone should, if you haven't unfollowed and blocked Graham Linehan, uh, <laughs> now is a really good time to do now to get on board with that. But yeah, he like I went back and looked cause looked at his feed just today to see if he was saying anything about the the, the stream, and it is just you know there's nothing about comedy, <laughs> there's nothing mm-hmm. about film or television, and it is just bile for for you know days and days and days, and well. You want to be remembered for something. Mm. Yeah, and he he also, there's a, another YouTuber called Sean or Sean and Jen is the kind of like the, the full name of the channel. And he did a video about transphobia, specifically in the kind of like the UK media. You know, in, in discussing that, he kind of had to talk about Graham Linehan and the mermaid situation. And apparently Linehan did like a video response to that video today. And I was kind of thinking, wow, that's such a, an illustration of how deranged he has become on this <laughs> this topic that he feels he has to do a video response to a YouTuber who has a, a reasonable reach, like Sean and Jen, they've got a good couple hundred thousand subscriptions or whatever on, U- on YouTube. So like a decent audience, but not huge. But him, someone who has, you know, is a, 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 until recently, uh, a venerable part of the British comedy establishment, someone who's, produced a bunch of acclaimed tv shows feels he has to do a video response to him on twitter is like it it, it clearly points to just how deranged by the whole situation he has become and Mm. and so it's kind of a delight seeing just how enraged he is by this whole thing and the success of this stream yeah yeah long may it continue and then at the point at which he'll be like ah maybe i'm just screaming at a cloud here Mm. yeah and I'll, i'll put a link to the notes here to to that stream, which also has uh, donation links on it, if anyone wants to donate to that and make hateful people even angrier, uh, mm-hmm. which I think is uh, the least we can do <laughs> to try and uh, right things in the world. Like, like if you can't if you can't necessarily right every wrong, at least make the right people mad. I guess. Yeah, sure. And uh, if we're talking about people being mad, the the wrong people were made happy this week in the announcement that uh, there's going to be a new Ghostbusters movie. And whilst it doesn't necessarily suggest that it's been made to appease people who are angry that they made a version with women in it, that's kind of the subtext seems to be, you know, that, that they are making a a Ghostbusters movie for the fans uh, with a, allegedly the original cast directed by Jason Reitman, probably not in a great place in his career if he's agreeing to do this. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, this just was an announcement that came through the other day and was just came as a complete surprise to me, left me flumped, to use Emily's uh, terminology. Uh, I was really just, I just don't understand why it's happening. I don't understand. Matt, please explain. Mm. I mean, I, I was as shocked as anyone. Mm. But I mean, 
It's it's weird to think that Ghostbusters holds so much affection, given that it Ghostbusters is really good. That's mm-hmm. a good movie. I don't think anyone's, you know, saying it isn't. But it's it's not amazing. <laughs> you mm. know what I mean? It was it was very successful. It was great. Ghostbusters two is terrible, and the the remake that they did a few years ago, the aforementioned all female remake, wasn't great. It's pretty fine. Um, mm-hmm. almost to the point where you watch it and think, oh, this is something that's happening. And, mm-hmm. okay, sure. Chris Hemsworth is very funny in it. He he is, and it's it's got some funny bits in it, but it also has bits where the original cast turn up, and it's painful to watch. And There's an Ozzy Osbourne cameo. Ozzy Osbourne cameo, which feels <laughs> so irrelevant. That it's, it's kind of almost hurts. Mm-hmm. To say, well, they're making another one, and like it did feel a little bit like, okay, they are appeasing the fans. But I was like, well, how are they? Because I have not read, I can't seem to find any indication that the original cast are in it. So I was thinking, is Jason Ryman the link? Is that how they're appeasing them? Saying, well, the, you know, Ivan Ryman's not available, but his son is. Mm. You know, that will bring the fans clamoring back, or maybe get, you know, the original person who anim- animated Slimer in um, <laughs> to try and kind of in some way. But I, I I don't really understand how. I mean, I can kind of get how, as much as I disagree with them, and it kind of really upsets me to hear people say it, but like people who are like, well, you know, Star Wars is my childhood, and like some ex person ruined it. But the thing is, like, Star Wars is so ubiquitous that people can spend their entire life getting into it. I mean, you know, whatever. But Ghostbusters were like one movie for a long time, then a bad one that no one liked. It's not like people were like, you know, like rabid defenders of that film. So it just surprised me that they're still kind of plowing on with it. It's it, it definitely felt like I, when I first saw the trailer, I was like, oh, it's the new Stranger Things trailer, which I think, mm. you know, they're very heavily going for that. Yeah. And that's, that's where I, I've kind of read and seen that it's like a new cast of kids. Because, I mean, just do it with kids. If it doesn't work with women, try kids. Mm -hmm. And then if that doesn't work, animal Ghostbusters. Now, that actually is an idea. (laughs) Homeward Bound, but they're Ghostbusters. Perfect. Print it. (laughs) Yeah, that will be um, um, a blockbuster hit. But I don't, yeah, I don't. I saw someone making a joke. I hope it was a joke that Max Landis is going to do a remake of American Werewolf in London. That that was mooted for a while. I'm not sure there's any traction on it or anyone has any interest. Hopefully not. Oh, that... if that happens, I will kick the fuck off because <laughs> because that man, his continued failure to do anything good, should not be rewarded with like being remade, remaking a, a, a great film. You you don't you know just because your dad did it, it's, mm-hmm. it's a stupid idea. Yeah, it that that was one of those projects that as soon as you hear it like you your skin just kind of like crawls it's like someone's walking over your own grave mm. or walking over griffin dunn's grave <laughs> <laughs> and then he shows up half melted and angry at you for it yeah we're we just gonna have endless films remade by you know offspring of fate like sophia coppola doing the godfather I wouldn't mind that i think that'd be that'd be quite interesting to see what you would do that material but yes in that would be weird Mm, it would be weird. So yeah, I can't think of any more now. That joke ran out of steam quite quickly. Rob Reiner remaking the jerk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Max Brooks do, doing uh, like Blazing Saddles. Hmm. Um, I mean, he's that's just a son. He's not even a film director, but you know, as I said, the joke ran out of steam. Mm-hmm. I think he should at least take a stab at like the history of the world part one, like one of the lesser ones that you could really, really kind of maybe do some tweaks to. Mm. Yeah, I'm into that. Hey, where were we? Ghostbusters. Um, oh, yep. Yeah, but but yeah, I I don't have any massive enthusiasm for it. I'm kind of surprised that it's happening and it looks like it's you know it's not necessarily it's not just like oh this is the thing we're planning to do it seems like a thing that they're fairly far along in and the whole thing about it is it's like a secret ghostbusters movie which they're ruining the secret of by announcing it i guess but the fact that it seems to be in a fairly advanced stage does suggest that they are gonna go through it and it's going to come out like next year maybe and i can't imagine it's going to be particularly good largely because if people's complaints about the first Ghostbusters was that Paul Feig didn't have much experience in doing like effects heavy action comedy. Wait till they get to see what Jason Reitman does. It's like there was, there wasn't much extra ectoplasm in Tully. No. Imagine if the Ghostbusters is basically just Charlie's Theron walking around feeling sad. Actually, I would like that. I would watch it. (laughs) I'm into it. The ghosts in that are her regrets uh, of her past choices in life. Mm hmm. And then Patton Oswalt turns up for a bit. Yeah, I'd be into this. Yeah, basically, we just want them to remake Young Adult with like a $150 million budget. But don't spend any of it on special effects. No, just build, I don't know, like a, a, a two-scale replica of a Brooklyn neighbourhood, like in Synecdoche, New York. <laughs> mm. Yeah, they should be giving us the money, not Jason Reitman. Yeah, we'll we will also waste your money, studios, but in a more entertaining and weird way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've got no experience, but you know, it's fine. You didn't. It didn't stop you giving the money to Max Brooks to do that remake of History of the World Part One. And look how that turned out. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And our final story this week, and it will lead us on to our main story. Our main topic is that Jason Katams, the showrunner behind shows like About a Boy and Parenthood, and most significantly, for us certainly, Friday Night Lights. Mm-hmm. He had a real run there of turning quite good movies into slightly better TV shows. <laughs> <laughs> like, that was a weird niche he really managed to hone in on for some reason. But he signed a, an overall deal with Apple, which is going to kind of allow him to produce shows for them. And this is significant both because he's a fairly successful showrunner who's got a bu- who's made a bunch of acclaimed shows, even shows that even though some of those shows didn't end up running for that long. So obviously him signing on is is kind of a big move for Apple, who are trying to go into the original programming game. But it's also significant because uh, it's just a reminder that Apple are, are do, doing original programming and that the landscape for television continues to shift in a major way so that companies that you wouldn't have thought sort of four or five years ago would be interested in doing original content are now moving in that direction to the extent that we have like Facebook original TV shows, which no one knows because who the hell knows how to watch Facebook TV. But like that, that is the, the gold rush, I guess, effect of peak TV is that everyone feels like they have to do it now. And none of them have learned so far from Yahoo screen and how difficult it is to get people to experience a new form, a a, a new streaming service. But uh, by God, everyone's giving it a go. Mm. And this comes as a particular interest to me, because, I mean, first of all, 
you know, if if you can, if you're going to be talking about peak TV, then you, there's it won't be too long before Friday Night Lights comes up uh, in mm. conversation, and to snare the showrunner of that away from what I assume is a fairly cushy deal at Universal to do who knows whatever he wants, I guess, carte blanche, or you know, make a slightly better version, TV version of a of an all right film. So, I mean, that's. That's that's notable in, in, in that sense, and that's exciting. But the other thing is that, like, I've heard that Apple's TV streaming service is going to be bundled in with Apple Music, mm. but the beleaguered Apple Music. And yeah. I, for one, <laughs> was an early adopter thinking that would be great, and it's kind of not very good, but I've stuck with it, and I'll be laughing when I'm saving money on subscription fees. Mm. Yeah, when you can watch that show they have with Reese Witherspoon. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I will be laughing all the way to the bank that I've paid all this money for all this time to have my favorite albums with a few songs missing when I'm out and about. It's a good, it's a good catch for um, Apple Music. I suppose they've got the money; they can throw it at anyone. Um, mm. But yeah, like I say, we're, we're going to get to talking about some of the shows they've got planned, and uh, it seems you know they're not really going in at the shop floor; they are going in right to the top and mm. um, and chasing talent. Um, with bags of cash down the street screaming at them. Yeah, I get. I guess the thing with both Apple and Facebook is they have just so much money mm. that unlike Yahoo, who really were kind, they had become very much also rands when they decided they were going to you know uh, bring community back and then commission a bunch of shows that no one watched at all these are giant companies that have huge amounts of money that they can just spend so they can wage what i think will probably be a fairly long war of attrition against netflix to try and get people to pay attention to their original stuff and i'm skeptical about them being able to have a hit like that that will really break out in that way because Mm -hmm. even amazon have more or less failed at that like they have a couple of buzzy shows but nothing that you could point to and say this is a show that everyone is talking about in the same way that everyone was talking about orange is the new black a few years ago Mm. but it seems like they are preparing for a fairly long campaign of trying to break through into original content and i'm 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 very curious to see how that ends up shaking out Mm. this is very much the first world war of the television wars it's going to be an attritional war of inches, which hopefully will pave way to a more exciting war mm-hmm. um, a few years later with a lot more narrative interest. I've just, I have just kind of belittled the great sacrifice that many people made uh, on mm-hmm. the field of battle, um, just to compare it lazily to, to television. But mm-hmm. there we go. Welcome to the show. Yeah, and uh, I think what we can all really look forward to is the Peter Jackson of twenty one nineteen doing, like, touched-up, recolorized footage of Jason Katums. Mm. Yeah, could you imagine that? Uh, I guess then it'd be, like, trying to transfer footage from HD cameras to 3D uh, holograms. That, <laughs> lives, that live in your eye sockets. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, and then we watch them adrift on uh, icebergs with, like, you know, emaciated polar bears because the planet... Mm-hmm. <laughs> who we assume can only survive on coke because of the last kind of uh, vestiges of 21st century culture that we have. Mm, it's kind of like, yeah. oh, all we know about polar bears is that they're meant to be thin and they love coke. They do love coke. Are we talking about the drug or the the soft drink? 
Well, we know they're fans of white powder, so... <laughs> well, why do you think they're hanging around? Why do you think the icebergs are getting smaller, Ed? Because <laughs> they're going right up their nose. They love to the sniff, the polar bears. They love it. Welcome to the show that belittles sacrifices of World War One <laughs> deaths and creates entirely new conspiracies about <laughs> global war. Yeah. And also talks about TV coming out in the year ahead. So... Yeah. As as Matt said, you know, we're still we're still close enough to the new year that we feel like we can get away with doing another preview episode. <laughs> cool. So so we're going to do a, an episode in which we talk about the TV shows, the, the the new TV shows that are coming out in the year ahead, and there's some very exciting stuff on the horizon, but also shows that are coming back and shows that are finishing. Because in looking at you know a list of shows that are premiering you know uh over the course of the next year and the various different stages in their life cycle there is there are a lot of shows that in many ways have come to define you know the peak tv era that we we always talk about that are finishing this year and it feels very much like a year that uh, maybe represents some sort of a sea change um at least in terms of the tv shows that you know critics bodies really like and that always uh, are part of the the discourse about the best show on tv mm, yeah i was saying to you earlier that i had found a preview article online of the tv shows coming up and i got to the end of it and i was like jesus christ there's a lot of television coming out this year and then realized it was page one of three <laughs> wow. because um, we are we are they are there the dam has broken and now there is too much television and it's it's gone to the point where peak TV, the point at which you won't catch up with everything unless you're a, a professional TV critic, that's gone now. And now mm. it's going to be the point where there's too much television that you're overwhelmed with choice and you have that kind of option paralysis. So you don't watch anything. Yeah. <laughs> so there's more TVs being made and no one's watching it because they don't know what to watch. Yeah, everyone just goes on Twitch and mm. watches people play old N64 games. Yeah, yeah. For a good course, though. Who'd have thought that would have been a thing? Mm. So I think one of the things that's quite interesting in terms of looking at the, the TV preview is even though we're only, we're barely three weeks into the year, mm. there have already been two shows on Netflix that seem to have broken out. Like the, the the television season, which now lasts a full year, has really kind of kicked off in earnest with the show Sex Education, which has got a lot of great reviews and has uh, kind of found a fairly big global audience. And You, which is a very interesting case because that was a show that actually debuted on Lifetime in the US last year. But then this year debuted on Netflix just like last week or two weeks ago. And according to Netflix's own statistics, which, uh, you know, as we've said in the past, are to be viewed sceptically, they have more asterisks than a French comic book shop. They are... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. How long have you been sitting on that one? Jesus Christ. About three hours. I thought of it as I was driving around earlier. I was like, that's not bad. Uh, It's been viewed by, like, 40 million people or something like that, which would suggest that it's, like, one of the most popular shows. If those are people all in America, it's literally the most popular show on television that isn't a sporting event. Mm. And... It just it's it's just a very interesting story in terms of illustrating the ways in which platforms can really alter the way in which we view TV shows because by most accounts you which is kind of a fairly accessible but but 
still kind of like dark anti-hero sort of show felt very out of place on Lifetime, which doesn't really have a huge history of that other than um, uh, Unreal, which debuted there and was, was really good, but also ended up migrating to a streaming service. Mm. Um, the lovesick effect, shall we say? Yes. Uh, it, it was a show that just seemed out of place there, but then when you put it on Netflix, suddenly it feels something that feels natural to that format. And, and also the fact that people can binge it greatly alters the way in which people can experience that show because then they're suddenly tearing through the whole thing in a weekend as opposed to the uh, the more frustrating experience of watching it week to week, particularly for something that is maybe a little more serialised. Mm, yeah, I suppose with, with Star Trek coming back, uh, I think that started this week. I'm going to have yes. to suffer the, through the seven-day drought like some, you know, wretched animal living in the <laughs> 1980s. Yeah, I, I do wonder whether that is going to pressure production cycles in the future of like television going forward that they are going to have to have at least a block ready for the premiere date rather than... Well, something like Star Trek Discovery is a good case in point because they've probably got a lot of special effects they're still working on for the back end of the season. Mm. Um, and I wonder if that will kind of impact that. Anyway, that's beside the point. Yes, those two uh, shows seem to be um, like kind of fairly sizable breakout hits and interesting that Netflix will release viewing figures when it suits them. Mm. When you actually want to know what somebody's watching, they're like, yeah, sorry, we don't release viewing figures. Yeah, it, it definitely... And, and that's a large part of where the scepticism comes from if they were they were much more transparent and at least like gave people a spreadsheet every quarter or whatever saying oh these were the shows that did really well then you maybe could you know they'd still be the ones providing the information so you wouldn't have necessarily have a independent arbiter to say which of this stuff was correct but at the very least you would have something to go on as opposed to them just kind of saying yeah did really really well which is not something that you would say give much credence to if it was a company on the stock market saying that. In fact, you would probably assume that that company was like a shell game that was going to collapse. Yeah. You wouldn't just like say one show out of every 50 you put out will release the figures for, and then we'll just quietly cancel a whole bunch of other ones. And then you can just assume that they didn't go so well. Mm. I guess the only metrics that people can generally use is, is like comments on social media, but even then that's kind of, you you may be giving outsize influence to a few voices there because like you could have like 10,000 people who are very vocal about liking the show but the audience for that show might literally be like 11,000 people mm. uh, as it it doesn't necessarily suggest oh 10,000 people are talking about the show if you extrapolate it that means that it's getting like a million views per episode mm. yeah yeah but what i wonder what the business reason is that they don't release their viewing figures Probably because probably a lot of their shows do get dismal ratings. I would assume just because they produce so many and they pump out so much stuff that some of it has just got to get completely lost in the in the deluge. And if they do release all of like if they was can release a complete accounting of it, then they would have to admit that their business model makes zero sense in that regard. That maybe what they should have be doing is. What they did initially, which is they had like five original programs and everything else was pre-existing stuff. But at the same time, they kind of have to barrel through with this, with the original content thing, because they own so few of the shows that people actually watch on their platform. Like Mm. by some estimates, the most popular show on Netflix is the US Office. 
because that's what people watch for comfort. They want to watch the show that they've watched like 10 times already. And that's why they've spent a hundred million dollars to get the rights to friends for another year, because ultimately their original stuff with a handful of exceptions doesn't break through and kind of find a big audience in the way that just showing the familiar stuff does. Mm. And they're about to lose 20% of their library, aren't they? Netflix. Yes, because a lot of those rights are kind of ending and there are a lot of these networks are like, well, why are we going to give you the shows and kind of help build your model when we could just create our own streaming service and put all of our old stuff on there? So they kind of have to do the original content thing because at a certain point, they're just going to not have the popular stuff. Mm. Uh, and then then I think their situation... It's going to be very interesting to see what their situation ends up being because it is plausible to think that in the next five years either netflix is remains like the biggest streaming service or or is even bigger and more of a monopoly than it is already or it literally doesn't exist anymore <laughs> because every other one and else has just taken all the stuff that they was propping it up mm. yeah this has turned into a netflix podcast again hasn't it Ed? this is yeah we always we always do this well just because i think they're the most interesting company to discuss in terms of like where tv is and in the sense that they have done so much to change and disrupt how people experience tv and their expectations of television and and you know the industry itself you know you've seen a move towards more shorter seasons and even network shows are now produced in a way that feels closer to cable like you have something like uh, the Good Place, which is only like 13 episodes a season and it's all shot in advance and it's mm-hmm. all pretty much done long before an episode airs and things like that, which wasn't the case for most sitcoms even a couple of years ago. And a lot of that is down to competing with the way Netflix does business or shaping shows with the foreknowledge that, okay, this may not do that well on the network it's currently on, but it's going to hit Netflix in six months and that could really boost our numbers for the second season or whatever. And I think you kind of have to have an, a, a greater interest in kind of like the change agent behind the changes in this industry more than the people who are reacting to it. it although the reactions themselves can be interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm, totally. Let, let's kind of like talk about some of the, the new shows. What shows are you excited for? Uh, we've got one due at the end of January. So next week, really. It's a TNT show called I Am The Night. Uh, mm. which is notable because uh, Patty Jenkins, uh, director of Wonder Woman and Monster um, mm. and the Wonder Woman sequel, I guess she's busy with that at the minute, um, is doing a kind of 60s set kind of drama uh, with Chris Pine in it. Um, mm. And, yeah. you know, those two seem to really enjoy working together. He's in the top two Chris's of, of you know, Hollywood. And it looks and sounds really good and is 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 a further argument to people who kind of belittle or bemoan television as being an inferior medium that like people just and you know actors have said this for years and they'll just go where the good writing is and mm. by the looks of things chris pine is not bothered about being you know an a-list hollywood star uh, or you know franchise tentpole um being captain kirk and all uh, and you know doing a TV series, and at the same time, uh, Patty Jenkins was, I'm pretty sure, offered a blank check by pretty much everyone after Wonder Woman, mm. um, and has decided to do this because, like, I, you know, realised when I read about it, it sounded interesting. Yeah, absolutely. It's 
uh, uh, very much in a genre that I'm excited by. The talent sounds really intriguing, and yeah, I'm I'm very very and TNT in general have been putting a lot more effort into their original dramas to try and shake the image that I think a lot of people have of them, rightly or wrongly, as kind of a a, a network that does kind of middle-brow procedurals. Mm -hmm. They were behind... There was a show they did last year with Daniel Bruhl and uh, Dakota Fanning that got a lot of really good reviews. The Alienist. Ah, yeah. The one I keep seeing popping up on Netflix and you're like, mm. oh, okay, that looks interesting. Oh, no, it's gone. There's something else to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't watched the fourth season of this show, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, and here we are. But, but yeah, so they did that show, which was a big kind of period piece based on an acclaimed novel from the 90s. So they definitely are trying to reshape people's perception of them and maybe try and become a bit more prestigious in, in a way very similar to what a lot of the basic cable networks like FX and AMC did in the, the mid-2000s when they started to try and compete with HBO. Uh, and what and you can kind of see TNT and other networks going in that same direction. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm looking forward to Shrill, which is a new show that's debuting on Hulu, so will probably show up on Netflix or something in the UK, uh, which is an adaptation of the memoir by Lindy West starring A.D. Bryant, who I like quite a lot. She's a very funny performer on SNL, often doesn't get much to do, but is generally pretty great. And I'm I'm really excited to see what they do with that material. Mm, yeah, is I think I saw that mentioned in the preview, but I don't really know what it's about. It's kind of about like the the basic premise is is basically just like it's about a woman who's trying to kind of live her life unencumbered and not caring about the fact that she is kind of a larger person, mm-hmm. like not letting the fact that she is larger hold her back from having everything that she wants. Right. And yeah, basically. And uh that sounds like it could be hugely uh, enjoyable certainly with the the talent involved but also reaffirming in terms of you know kind of body positivity and things like that mm, yeah and yeah ad Bryant is someone i mean i've not seen that much of the kind of newer cast of snl but she's someone that i i am drawn to she is pretty funny mm-hmm. um as you have to be to be on that tv show i believe that's part of the charm uh, you have to be a comedian. On the opposite end of the spectrum, I'm looking forward to Netflix's latest true crime show about Ted Bundy. Because uh, mm. who doesn't love Ted Bundy? But it's notable because uh, it's Joe Berlinger, who, you know, yeah. famously made the Paradise Lost trilogies, My Brother's Keeper, and the Metallica. He did the Metallica stuff, didn't he? Yes, uh, some kind of monster. That's uh, right. And most recently, a pretty decent documentary about Whitey Bulger. Which uh, yep. uh, was was very entertaining for the fact that halfway through, like one of his interview subjects just dropped dead, and there was a big scramble of everyone being like, "Oh my god, they're kind of going after everyone we're interviewing, and they're dying." And it was more like, "Oh no, he just died. <laughs> he just he just wasn't very well." Um, but uh, yeah, he's a great documentarian. And if I'm correct, is this the one that Zac Efron plays Bundy? It's weird because he actually has, by the looks of things, he actually has two Ted Bundy projects out in the same month. One is dramatised with Zac Efron as Ted Bundy, which is debuting at Sundance, and the other is a true crime docuseries at Netflix. Oh, both so by there you go. 
Joe Berlinger. He he loves Ted Bundy. Wow. So there we go. That is very bizarre, but mm. also very interesting because clearly, clearly he's got a lot of um, he's got a lot of material to work with there. Yeah, he didn't and... direct. You know, you just mentioned the aforementioned Whitey Bulger documentary. That same mm. year wasn't Black Mass. I think he didn't direct that. Yes. Did he? He didn't no. like. He didn't. He doesn't do a documentary and then the fictional version of the same thing. No, it'd be amazing if that was his his directorial tick. Okay, I've done all of this research for this uh, fiction movie. I know I can't put it put it all in, so I'll do this as by like the appendices. Mm-hmm. This is we're going to do a whole extra TV series about about or extra documentary about this one subject because there's just so much stuff. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird that that's actually happening. I'm into it. But, I mean, they've got a pretty decent record with true crime. Um, mm. Netflix, they seem to know what they're doing to make a, a fairly compelling docuseries of making a murderer, The Keepers, American yeah. Vandal, mm-hmm. all the all the good ones. Uh, Evil Genius, which was uh, super watchable. Yeah, so they know what they're doing. Also, on Netflix, in the same week, is a very intriguing-sounding television show called Russian Doll. Did you see this one? Pop up no. on your list. So it's uh, a comedy, and it stars Natasha Leon, uh, who Ooh. is you should know from Orange is the New Black and uh, the American Pie movies. It is directed by um, the woman who made Bachelorette, that film, which is not very good, but the premise is great because it's created by Natasha Leon, Leslie Headland, who is the person who directed Bachelorette, and Amy Poehler, mm-hmm. and it is a show in which Natasha Leon is the guest of honor at a party that recurs over and over again like she's in Groundhog Day. And right. the other party guests include Chloe Sevigny uh, and Dasha Polanco. So that's a pretty decent cast. A good yeah. concept, whether it could sustain being interested past, interesting past, you know, a handful of episodes. We shall wait and see. But I'm always... I always like people who shoot for the moon. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that sounds really good. I did I did see that being mentioned. I think there were some articles about it in the other week, uh, in the week where people were kind of like talking about the concept and I am very excited to see that. I really like Natasha Leon in everything I've ever seen her in. Uh, I'm a big fan of her in But I'm a Cheerleader. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah. Which she's great in. And The Slums of Beverly Hills, she's in that as well, isn't she? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Wonderful actress who's been doing fantastic work for years and years and years. And this sounds like a really great showcase for her. Mm, yeah, indeed. And just I'll just quickly just chuck in one more comedy. It's a Hulu comedy. Mm-hmm. And the Lonely Island have done it. It's called Pen15, which everyone knows spells <laughs> penis. Yep. And it, uh, I mean, the, the, the pitch is good. It's um, uh, Maya Erskine and Anna Conkle, who are two adult actresses. They play 13-year-old versions of themselves whilst at high school. But everyone else in the cast is played by a thirteen-year-old person. That does sound very, <laughs> very funny. <laughs> that's a that's just a weird premise. Yeah, that sounds like it could be just a sketch. <laughs> um, mm. But like, you know, that could be funny. And the Lonely Island, I don't think they created it. I think they're just like producing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, they know what they're doing. Yeah, they know funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure, I'm interested about interesting mainly because uh, I happened to hear an interview with one of the stars uh, on a podcast this week. It's called In the Dark, which is a CW kind of high-concept mystery program about a uh, a young blind woman who stumbles across the dead body of her best friend and you know calls the police, but when the police get there, the body's missing, so no one believes her that there, anything had happened, and so it all kind of 
stems from the question of what happened to her best friend did something happen and uh it co-stars rich summer of um mad men and most netflix programs <laughs> fame usually where in which he has sex with one of the cast members from community yeah he's um, working his way through him that's why the yeah. joel McHale show got cancelled uh, they just couldn't get around to it <laughs> he couldn't yeah and i'm i like a lot of the stuff that the cw do i think they have they have become one of the more interesting and unusual networks you know they're behind things like crazy ex-girlfriend and jane the virgin and i zombie which are all shows i really really love they've had great success with riverdale which is a show that should not have ever worked on paper and maybe doesn't work in practice but certainly is intriguing to watch um and obviously they've got all of their superhero programs which have been a massive massive success but they have a really strong track record of taking big risks and those risks for the most part working out so i'm i'm really excited to see how that ends up playing out mm interesting i don't want this again to feel like it's a netflix show mm-hmm. but they do have um have you seen this a kind of a sitcom with idris elba well no i hadn't um, heard that that he is like co-creating it's called turn up charlie okay um and he plays a dj mm. like a kind of a weekend dj yeah you know so he should be able to stretch to that, um, given anyone who's familiar with uh, DJ Big Driss and his work. Mm. Um, and he plays someone who has to be a nanny. So this could be terrible. It sounds like um, the exact plot of that Hulk Hogan movie. Yep, um, Mr. Nanny. Yeah, it's got Piper Perabo in it, though. Nice. Um, and, you know, she's got a great name, if nothing else. She's in Quite Ugly, which is one of the worst films I've ever seen. Um, but then she's also in other things that I've forgotten, but she's good in those. She's in Looper. Looper, that's right. Yeah, she's good in Looper. That's something that I did not know about. That Where does he find the time, Idris Elba? I know, he's shockingly prolific. Yeah. He's, he's in movies, he's in TV shows, he's reviving yeah. TV shows that everyone assumed were done. Uh, yeah. He's making memes with Daniel Craig. Mm-hmm, Yeah. Um, that maybe that's it. Maybe he doesn't actually do anything. All he does is say, all he is is like it's speculation that he's in <laughs> things, um, and he just kind of bats it away. Um, and then, but no, he is making a sitcom, which you know could be good. I mean, mm. Idris Elba's great. Everyone knows it. So yeah, we'll see. Netflix are doing an anthology drama with Renee Zellweger, mm. which is pretty interesting sounding and. I think that was it for for Netflix, of like their big ones. Did you have any more for Netflix? I had. Uh, they're doing a, a mini series about the Central Park Five, created oh, yeah. by Ava DuVernay, mm-hmm. which she has developed and will. Uh, it's expected she will direct all five episodes, so I'm excited about that. I think. I think she has of... done. I think it's done. She like oh. following her on Instagram and Twitter and stuff. She's they've wrapped it and she's done the whole thing. Nice, um, but yeah, she's obviously a director who's done really great work with Netflix in the past. They obviously worked together on 13, which uh, was a great documentary. And I I would say certain world events of the recent years have added uh, a greater resonance to the story of the Central Park Five, Mm. particularly the people now in positions of great power who advocated for the murder of innocent men. Yeah. So I think there is a, it's a, it's a, I don't want to say it like you say, oh, it's a great story. It's like, no, it's a tragic and tor- terrible story, but it's it's kind of great dramatic material and something that I think could, like a lot of uh, Ava DuVernay's work, could have a great contemporary relevance whilst also being dramatically very fascinating. Mm-hmm. Last word on Netflix. 
three more things to remind you of. Mm-hmm. One is they've got um, they you know, they've they've obviously got uh, Big Mouth, which is you know a kind of like raunchy adult animation. They've got another one yeah. coming called Tuka and Bertie, um, which has got Tiffany Haddish and mm. Ali Wong in it. Nice. Um, they've also got a Paul Rudd show called Living with Yourself about a man who makes a clone of himself. Um, right. And then, last but not least, uh, they have a show called Dolly Parton's Heartstrings, which is an anthology series with each episode based on a different. Dolly Parton song. That sounds really <laughs> weird, but like it could also be kind of cool. I hope we go all the way around to like the 60s and 70s where we're like now, because there's so much like TV out there, we just have these weird variety shows that, mm. that like people host and just shit happens on. And I, I remember seeing like clips of like the Dean Martin variety show and they would turn around and who'd be on it? Oh, it'd be Orson Welles. who would just wander out and, mm. you know, mug his way through a sketch or something and like, I don't remember these things ever happening, but they were ubiquitous back then. Maybe it's time yeah. we got it back. Yeah, or like uh, the the Johnny Cash show, which mm. was kind of like, it'd be like, oh, here's a bit of like funny cornball humor, and now a deeply serious protest song. <laughs> How America is broken. Mm-hmm. I want I want a little more kind of uh, cognitive dissonance in my entertainment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I have a bunch of shows tied into uh, a bunch of, DC shows. Um, last year, DC launched their own streaming app called the DC Universe, headlined by the much-mocked Titans, a grim and gritty reboot of the Teen Titans series, which uh, no one seems to like, but at the very least got a lot of attention for the trailer in which Robin goes, fuck Batman, <laughs> which is on, on its face hilarious. But um, they're, this is the first year where they're going to be really ramping up. You know, they've got a couple of shows on there now, but they're uh, going to have four new shows debuting this year. Doom Patrol, which is going to offer uh, a continue, a role for Brendan Fraser, which is cool in terms of his continued comeback through television after the J. Paul Getty series that he did last year. Swamp Thing, which I am genuinely very uh, interested in because I, I, I was always a big fan of Swamp Thing as a kid. Like, I just found something incredibly sad and melancholy about the character, uh, which was always quite fun. Stargirl... And an animated Harley Quinn TV series, uh, which could go either way. And on uh, Epics, one of those kind of like far distant channels, which no one realizes they have, they are making, and I cannot believe that this is a real program, (laughs) a TV series called Pennyworth, which is a prequel series about Alfred the Butler and his time in the SAS in the 1960s. And... The reason, the main reason I can't believe that exists is that in the incredibly funny Teen Titans Go movie that came out last year, one of the jokes was how they are making movies about every peripheral thing of Batman. And one of the movies they made to make fun of the notion of, oh, aren't these spin-off ridiculous was a movie about Alfred. So that joke was in that movie, even though they must have known that a TV series about Alfred was in development. Which makes that joke even funnier. <laughs> I think it'd be funny if they did it, but like straight faced, committed to a remains of the day style mm. uh, kind of tale of longing and regret. <laughs> but from mm. the from the perspective of Batman's Butler, mm-hmm. then I would when, watch that. When will you be happy, Master Bruce? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Have we talked about Apple earlier? Their mm-hmm. biggest show, which is still as yet untitled. 
has got quite a cast. Like we said about the uh, Jason Catham's news, they are going for top talent. So they've gone for Reese Witherspoon, mm-hmm. Jennifer Aniston, Steve Carell, and Gugu and Bata Raw. So, like, I mean, that just as a foursome in the cast is, you know, super appealing. And they're all people who are generally at the top of their game. Maybe Steve Carell's got his tail between his legs after the Mar- the Marwan debacle. Um, mm. But, but yeah, I mean, I'm into it just based on the cast. Yeah, and he also has a, a Netflix show with Adam McKay, doesn't he? Um, Steve Carell called Space Force, which is kind of a satirical take on the very serious policy promotion, uh, proposal of there being a new arm of the US military about space. Mm. Um, that was announced in the week as uh, as a as a potential project that he's going to be headlining and McKay is going to produce. So, uh, which is, I, I, I who knows if that's going to end up being much of anything, but uh, it's certainly interesting to see him branching back into television, having since the office ended, really eschewed it for the most part. Mm. I mean, he got. An Oscar nomination, yeah, for turning in the weakest performance in that film, mm. and it's just been very patchy since then, hasn't it? Yeah, lots of sad dad roles. That's yeah. been kind of like one of his major things uh, in Beautiful Boy, uh, which has just come out, which everyone says is not very good. Mm. Yeah, he 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 hasn't exactly been playing to his strengths. It seems. No, no. What if you played a boss? That was kind of zany, but also a bit of a knob. Mm. Mm, that'd, that'd fit me, yeah. Or a man who possibly has de- developmental problems, but has a real, <laughs> real strong trident arm. Mm. <laughs> yeah, who likes loud noises um, yeah. and lamps. Mm. Segue back from that era. The you Do you remember that film, Snowpiercer? Of course we all do. Yeah. It was so fucked up. There's a TV show of that coming out. Um, mm, yeah. with Jennifer Connelly and David Diggs, aka him off Hamilton, uh, Lafayette yep. slash uh, Jefferson from Hamilton, uh, and on a Hamilton tip, Lin Manuel Miranda and Tommy Kale, the uh, director or 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 is he the choreographer? I can't remember. He's the director. Director. Uh, they've got a, a mini series, is it, with uh, called Fosse Verdon about yes. Bob Fosse and Gwen Verdon, which I'm very very excited about, primarily because it stars. Uh, Sam Rockwell as Bob Fosse, which is a pretty great casting in terms of physical uh, physicality. They, there's a strong resemblance between them, but also yeah, as uh, Emily and I, I think, talked about on the show a few weeks ago, if you've ever seen his uh, audition for Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, which is mm. mostly him dancing. dancing. Yeah. You, uh, you. It's weird how that seems to be the DVD extra everyone has seen. Everyone's, because Whereas... it's an extra that is just, it just says something like Sam Rockwell dancing. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's it's he's he's just kind of a delightful performer, and I think that offers him some real opportunities to do some really great, fascinating stuff. And yeah, Michelle Williams as Gwen Verdon is also a great bit of casting because if you, anyone has ever seen any footage of Gwen Verdon, will know she is a dead ringer for Michelle Williams, mm. and Michelle Williams is also like one of the you know top five actors in the world, certainly in America, uh, one of the absolute greats. So I'm very excited to see how that shakes out. And the trailer for it that was released a few weeks ago was really uh, scintillating. Like, it's not much in terms of plot or character. It's just all mood. And I'm a sucker for those kind of, like, mood-setter trailers. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And uh, one more example of talent doing 
the crossover from film to television. Like uh, Amazon had Homecoming last year, which I was a big fan of. That's a really, really good show. I'd recommend people watch that if they can, if they have Prime. Uh, please do. Um, but they're doing a show called Modern Love. Did you see the cast of this? And, and the, no. The, so it's based on the New York Times essay series, which I'm sounding like I know about. <laughs> News to me. Never read it. Written directed by John Carney, who did Once, that I have seen. Ooh, uh, nice. He also did Sing Street uh, a couple of years ago, which is great until the last 20 minutes. But the ensemble <laughs> cast is uh, Anne Hathaway, Tina Fey, John Slattery, Julia Garner, and Dev Patel. Wow. Pretty great. Yeah, it's pretty decent. Could be good. All of those people are great. Pretty much that. I'm just no, I'm checking the list again. There are no exceptions. They're all good. A show that I'm quite excited about because I was a big fan of the book and the author, Joe Hill, a lot of his books have been optioned at various points and have come close to being made, but only the only one so far that actually was made was an adaptation of his book, Horns, which was... Uh, kind of middling but this sounds like it could be really good it's a book called Nosferatu which is spelt N-O-S-4-A-2 which is a license plate it's kind of a cosmic horror epic which involves a monster who travels around in kind of like an old car and steals the souls of people and it's an incredibly upsetting and unsettling book which shouldn't come as much of a surprise because Joe Hill is the son of Stephen King and he is a very fine horror author in his own right and I'm just really really excited to see if they manage to convey even a even a fraction of the kind of deep-seated unsettling horror of the novel in in a tv show. Mm. And speaking about adaptations, Ed, here's here's a good mm-hmm. segue. This mm-hmm. year we've got Barry Jenkins of Moonlight and If Bill Street Could Talk fame doing um, The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. He's doing that for Amazon. Mm-hmm. We have Hulu are doing The Undoing, which is based on um, You Should Have Known by uh, John Hav Korolitz, um, which is stars Nicole Kibben and Hugh Grant. That's pretty uh, wow. solid cast. Uh, yeah. The long gestating like adaptation for television of Catch-22 with George Clooney mm. and Kyle Chandler and uh, Hugh Laurie. Um, yeah. They're doing a TV version of The Name of the Rose uh, with John Turturro, I assume, in the Sean Connery role. And there's uh, Armistead Maupin's Tales of the City. That's a famous book. They're doing mm-hmm. a version. Netflix are doing a version of uh, a miniseries with Laura Linney, Olympia Dukakis, and Ellen Page. Uh, and also capping this off, the biggest adaptation of the year, Probably at Christmas, we're going to get the adaptation of his Dark Materials mm, with yeah. uh, James McAvoy and Lin Manuel Miranda, who is trying to be everywhere. So that's, I assume that'll be BBC's Christmas thing because it's a BBC and yeah. um, American Network co production, I think, isn't it? Yep, that's right. And let's not forget the third major co star, Uncomfortable Close Ups, because it is, of course, directed by Tom Hooper. Mm, Jesus Christ. Which, which is the big uh, X factor of whether or not that'll be any good like maybe returning to television will will kind of rein in his uh worse influences but um yeah that's that's kind of like the thing the only thing about it that gives me pause because everything else i think this sounds great this is the right format for that story it kind of gives it the scope and the time to really dig into that world it's gonna it sounds like a lot of money's being put behind it so it's gonna look great but then oh yeah tom hooper that Mm. guy yeah yeah, I'd forgotten about that actually, Ed. And you, sorry, you brought it. That's that's really pissed on my chips. Ah, uh, 
Sorry, but you know you've got to you've got to keep your expectations at the right level. Mm, they'll and be tempered. With, with Tom Hooper, that's like two inches above the ground. <laughs> He's got to yeah, everything else. Without him, it's ten stories high. But once he's on it, it's like got to got to keep things in check. Some of the adaptations of books that have been in gestation for a long time or have been previously adapted in some forms. We're getting an adaptation of Good Omens, the Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett novel that I am a massive fan of. That's one of my absolute favourite books and which has been in some form of development for decades at this point. You know, at various points, Terry Gilliam was had it as his next project after he finished his Don Quixote movie. So that's kind of one of the reasons why it didn't happen. Uh, but uh, that that's a, a, a story that is incredibly funny. It's this wonderful spin on the omen where the son of Satan is brought to earth and uh, gets swapped with just a normal baby and just kind of like gets raised in rural England. And then uh, the apocalypse starts happening and uh, he has to make a choice about whether or not he wants to end the world. Uh, it's a very, very funny and thoughtful book the cast is really really strong the angel and demon that are at the center of the whole thing are played by michael sheen and david tennant who are uh, just two wonderful actors who are really perfectly suited for that sort of material john ham's in it as well it's just got a lot of really really good people and i'm really excited to see how that uh shapes out also on amazon for amazon prime an adaptation of garth ennis's the boys mm-hmm. which is an incredibly violent and darkly comedic comic book series about um ordinary people whose job it is to fuck up superheroes essentially mm. uh it takes place in a world in which superheroes just kind of leave just loads of collateral damage in their wake and don't really care about the people they're saving. They're more concerned with defeating the bad guys than, you know, not accidentally killing hundreds of people in the process. And so this team are brought together to uh, kind of bring them down to size. And it's a very, very funny and uh, really, really good comic series, or at least it was uh, when I uh, read it. I read like the first two or three collections and I thought they were they were excellent. Uh, so So that could be... That could be really, really good. And on HBO, we have a TV version of Watchmen, Mm. which I'm excited for mainly because it's being produced by Damon Lindelof, who previously did Lost, which is a show that I loved despite its flaws. And more importantly, for HBO, he previously worked on The Leftovers, which is one of my favourite television shows of all time. And I think he's a really fascinating artist and someone who could do something really special with Watchmen. Uh, probably nothing that would please Alan Moore, but could probably still do something really cool. Mm, yeah, I'm kind of interested to see where I go because it was something that screamed out being ad- adapted as a TV show. Mm, um, and the yeah. film adaptation of it probably came a little early, should we say? Like, you know... It should have been the, the the comic is divided into like twelve even parts, like mm. it really could be done like that. And it suits it. I wonder if they're going to retread the story, or they're you know going to take it in more interesting directions, or are they? Is it a mini series? Is it an ongoing series? Have they committed to ad- adapting like half like American Gods, the TV show of American Gods, which is mm. I think coming back for a second season? That first yeah. season is like the first third of the book or something. Yeah. Um, I don't know if, if the Watchmen thing, whether they're trying to drag it, because there's, there's a whole universe they could explore there, whether or not people be interested in it beyond the, the, the main story, I'm not sure. Mm. They seem to be fairly cagey about it so far. 
in in large part because I think the fan base are fairly rabid, and if you show them anything, you're uh, going to piss someone off. So uh, that that is the thing that I'm very excited about because one of the things again to to kind of go back to Terry Gilliam, he was someone who was attached to try and turn that into a TV series in the '90s, and his whole thing was he really wanted to get very loose with the adaptation, change the setting, kind of change a lot of the elements of the story. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily what Damon Lindelof is doing, but considering how he adapted The Leftovers, where the first season of the show was reasonably close to the plot of the novel with some divergences towards the end so that it could continue on as a story. And then the second and third are just completely original stuff that he and Tom Protter, the author of the novel came up with and just kind of like built on the show in ways that were really fantastic and made it such a unique and special show i i kind of i really hope that's that's what he's doing that he's taking it as the jumping off point and maybe exploring because like you say like there's a there's a whole past of watchmen that is hinted at in the the the, the comic but never explored in great detail so obviously there's there's a lot of material there if they want to do it or even if they wanted to do just a straightforward adaptation of the book you know that could that could be really good and it could work really well if not done by uh Zack Snyder and not necessarily being as slavish as his adaptation ended up being mm, yeah he didn't bring a whole lot to it did he no uh to paraphrase my review from the time Sure, it's faithful, but it's saying that he recreated the comic and therefore it's a great movie. It would be like me transcribing The Great Gatsby and saying I wrote a masterpiece. Like, technically true, mm. but uh, not really the spirit of what you ne- mean in that situation. Yeah, yeah, totally. I have had my eye on um, a little show, um, which is kind of interesting, given of what it seems to be a response Two is HBO have got like a documentary series about the serial, uh, the first season of serial. It's called The Case Against Adnan right. Syed. Okay. And Amy Berg directed it. She's a very good documentarian. Um, mm. But I kind of, that's kind of like a very unusual thing for HBO. I don't, and I kind of, there's very little detail about it that I can find, but they, they seem to have done it, I guess. Hmm. Yeah. It, it kind of feels like maybe something that was commissioned a while ago Mm. and has just taken a really long time to make. So it's coming out at the point when most people have kind of moved on from the story of Adnan Syed, including Serial itself, which kind of went on to uh, a a second season that was kind of very ambitious and not necessarily that satisfying. And a third season was even more ambitious, but really satisfying. Mm. So it kind of feels like a weird, weird that this is coming out now, mm. but it'd be interesting to see, I guess, how it shakes out. It, it, I, I guess that's a problem with maybe commissioning something at the peak of the zeitgeist when uh, documentaries take a really long time to make. Mm. It is weird. You could say it feels a little bit like we're in the Twilight Zone. And guess what? Mm. There's a new version of the Twilight Zone coming out. Uh, yes. And excitingly, it is overseen by Get Out and Us's and doing everything at the moment, Jordan Peele. Mm. Yes, and uh, again, it's for is I believe it's on CBS All Access. Yep. So probably be on Netflix. You'd think so, yeah. Seems to be how it works uh, for things showing up in the UK. Uh, yeah, I'm very excited to see him acting as something of the Rod Sterling figure, although maybe not 
pretty much killing himself writing every single episode. <laughs> but certainly in the case of being the face of the show and kind of giving it its overall vision. And I'm really, I'm really intrigued by it. I'm, I think they've said there's going to be a mix of, you know, adapting older stories for a new audience, which is what previous revivals of the show have done. Yeah, the one from the 80s and the mid-2000s and original stories. And I'm probably more excited about the original stories because that's the thing about the Twilight Zone that was always cool, was it offered a new thing every week and it, you could get some really punchy, exciting, sometimes weird and kind of cheesy sci-fi stuff, but you were always getting something exciting and interesting. And uh, I, I would hope to get new and exciting and interesting stuff as opposed to good but familiar revivals of old stories. Mm, yeah. My last show, because we need to talk about the shows that are coming back at some point, Ed. Mm-hmm. Um, but my last show that I want to talk about is the flagship show for the Disney streaming service, Disney Plus, The Mandalorian, which is mm. a television show set in the Star Wars universe. And given that it's called The Mandalorian and they recently scrapped a Boba Fett movie, I am not saying that it would just recycle the ideas from that. Um, given that Boba Fett is a Mandalorian and it looks pretty similar. Um, but I mean, they, I'm sure it'll be good. John Favreau's on it. The list of directors is pretty exciting. And the cast is pretty mad. They've got Pedro Pascal in the title role. I'm pretty sure he'll be in the title role. It's not been confirmed. Um, but uh, Giancarlo Esposito, Nick Nolte, who they're letting near a television set. Not sure that's a good idea. And <laughs> Werner Herzog. Uh, are all in this show, which is fucked up, but I'm into it. <laughs> yeah, do you think he'll be talking about penises as much in this one as he did in uh, Rick and Morty? I hope so. I yeah. have heard a rumour, and I don't know whether it's like, you know, just the internet speaking. But do you, you know in Empire Strikes Back, you mm-hmm. know when they're sticking Han Solo in the carbonite, like yeah. uh, then the little little fellas that have got like, they're, kind of, they're called Ugnaughts for anyone who mm-hmm. wants a deep cut. And they're like... They're like very small creatures with like skullets. They've got like bald on top and they've got like a mullet at the back and they're like a bit like a pig. I've heard a rumour that Nick Nolte's voicing one of those. Now, I would fucking kill to see the recording session <laughs> when he does that. That would be so fucking funny. Yeah. I just even, I presumably also it's going to be a voice role for Werner Herzog because that's kind of what he's been doing. Yeah, whatever, whatever character he ends up voicing, I think is going to be very interesting. Mm, creepy as fuck. Hmm. Or he'll just like it would just be like when he was on Parks and Rec, and he would just show up in like a bomber jacket and just be on set and be like, "Yeah, I'm not going to put on a uniform. It's, mm. it's going to be weird enough that I'm here. <laughs> Trust me, it'll work." Yeah, I'll just run through some quick ones. Uh, we got the American restaging of what we do in the shadows, which is uh, being directed and developed by Taika Waititi, who obviously did the original movie, and it's got a very very cool cast: Kevan Novak, Matt Berry, uh, Doug Jones as some of the vampires and uh, I'm excited to see if that kind of the tone of that travels over and what they can do in terms of stretching out it's also very strange that what we do in the shadows has got a whole television expanded universe now because there's also the New Zealand spin-off about the two cops mm-hmm. which uh, I believe just played some episodes at Sheffield uh, celluloid screams it did yeah which was very cool and we've also got uh, the revival of Veronica Mars, which is coming to Hulu. And uh, I liked the original series of Veronica Mars. 
and uh, I'm very glad that Kristen Bell has got on to tremendous success since then because I remember watching that show and thinking when it got cancelled oh man I hope she lands on her feet and I think it's fair to say that she, that she did uh, she's done lots of great work since then and uh, I'm really excited to see what Kareem Abdul-Jabbar does as one of the writers mm. um, which is still yeah I'm, I don't I, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm just very curious about that oh uh, in another revival news obviously Deadwood yeah. is coming back as a as an event, a genuine huge TV event, and I am absolutely delirious about that. I, mm-hmm. I still can't quite believe it's happening, and I'm I'm just really uh, yeah. I just, I can't. I genuinely can't vocalise how excited I am. I've already um, scheduled in my rewatch, and I'm excited about it because I'll be watching it with my wife, who has never seen it. Mm. So and... she will be, you know, learning all new swear words. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, suddenly dropping Hooplehead into uh, mm-hmm. everyday conversation. And also, uh, I'm really excited for the return of Deezus and Mero, Deezus Nice and the Kid Mero, whose show on Vice was a real delight. Uh, there was a kind of a daily talk show where they made fun of the news and was generally treated very poorly by Vice. Unsurprisingly, Vice, not a great company. Mm. And they left in order to pursue other ventures and they're basically by all accounts kind of revamping their old format for showtime a real network and i'm very excited to see those guys come back because they are just two of the funniest people uh, alive and i'm just really excited to see their chemistry even though it's probably going to be once a week as opposed to five times a week which was a rate that i cannot believe that they kept up with because that seems just incredibly exhausting <laughs> to basically come in and improv every day about the news. Mm. There was one last show that I had forgotten about. I did say that the Star Wars one was the last one, but Netflix are doing the Dark Crystal prequel uh, mm. with a cast that is ridiculous. It's too much to go into now. Um, assume that Lin-Manuel Miranda is in it, even though I don't think he is. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, that's, that's a weird one. That's happening. Mm. Yeah, I mean, didn't they do... There was like a, an, a, a comic or something that was published a few years ago. I think so, like, yeah. Like that was the the idea that Jim Henson had had for a sequel that never ended up happening. Mm. So I think clearly there is a appetite out there for it to happen, but I guess it, it, it kind of points to the sheer amount of money that Netflix have that they can just pursue anything that's an, a, an IP. They just be like, okay, people remember this. They may watch this. Christ, we need something that's not The Office. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm just going to have a quick rundown. Um, of shows that are coming back this year, some of which are ending. Uh, mm-hmm. Most notably, I think you, you might have heard of it, a little show called Game of Thrones, yes. uh, based on a popular book series. Uh, that's going back as, what, six five-hour films or something ridiculous. Mm, yep, all directed by Bellatar. <laughs> yep, directed by Bellatar, written by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. <laughs> Starring Terry Gar, <laughs> Terry Gar, yeah, and Martin Starr. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'd watch it. Uh, Orange is the New Black is finishing mm. we, after a bit of a wobble. Um, I'm sure it will try and finish strongly. Veep is finishing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's managed to carry on, like, is it two seasons now without Armando Iannucci? Yes. So, yeah, that's finishing. Um, Homeland is finishing. I didn't even know it was still fucking going. Mm, so, yeah, that's that's finishing. Um, and we have, very sadly, uh, Broad City is finishing. Mm-hmm. The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt is finishing. Yeah, in like a week. Yes. Like this week. It, the, it's weird when 
because shows just drop every episode now, it like it doesn't feel quite as much of as an event as if mm. it was like, oh my god, like there's only six more weeks of this. It's like no, there's like there's three hours of this show left and they all get dropped on the 25th. Yeah. So those are the big ones that are kind of coming back and ending. Uh, shows that are coming back that people who like them will be excited to hear about. HBO have got Big Little Lies and mm. Barry. Um, yes. Fleabag is coming back for another season, which I'm very excited about. Um, yeah, so. The End of the Fucking World, which I'm not entirely sure how they're going to do a second season of that, although it is based on a comic. I assumed that was the lot because it ends pretty definitively. Not really sure how that's going to work, but I'm into it because that was really fun to watch. Um, and the Stranger Things is obviously coming back on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's more Black Mirror coming to Netflix. Who knows if you'll be able to interact with it or not. Um, but the show I'm most excited about coming back to Netflix is Mindhunter. Um, the second season of the David Fincher produced slash directed slash created show about um, the behavioral science unit of the FBI, um, yes. which was a good show. And you were like, okay, this is good. And then the last episode, you're like, oh shit, they've been doing something that I didn't expect this whole time um, and set season two up very nicely. Um, so I'm super excited about that one. And then the last couple of shows, IFC have still got another season of The Handmaid's Tale to come. Mm-hmm. And documentary now is still going. They haven't run out of ideas yet. Yes. So yeah, the, I mean, those 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 are the big ones that are kind of coming back. Yeah, I'm really excited about documentary now. They've only released a handful of details about who's going to be in it and a few images, but there's a episode in it uh, where John Mulaney basically plays Stephen Sondheim's Circa Company, which right. looks uh, looks fantastic and looks like. Um, is going to make a great use of his theatrical way of speaking. Um, mm. There's uh, also, I believe, Kate Blanchett in it is playing like a Marina Abramovich sort of performance artist type. Okay, which uh, sounds fantastic. I'm I, that that show is just a constant delight, and I'm mm-hmm. really excited to see what happens with that. I had some more shows coming back that are ending this year, uh, and I thought it was interesting because it feels like these shows are all. They all feel like they're kind of of a class with each other in like, it's like almost like a graduating class of shows that debuted to kind of great deal of buzz. And in some cases they kind of continued and maintained that buzz and excitement, but they all feel like shows that in some way came to define what people think of as peak TV. So Mm -hmm. in addition to the ones that you mentioned, you also have The Deuce, the HBO show from david simon that no one watched that uh, wasn't tremaine <laughs> um mm-hmm. he's had he, he he's kind of got great luck in that he keeps making shows that are good but bad luck in that no one watches any of them uh, mr robot is ending this year crazy ex-girlfriend is ending this year it's in fact going to mm, be ending course. in a couple of weeks uh i zombie which i mentioned earlier is a, gr- a show i greatly enjoy jane the virgin the affair transparent in many ways being put out of its misery. Um, mm-hmm. Not necessarily because of a declining quality, but just the, the, the drama around the production of the show is kind of swamps everything around it at this mm-hmm. point. Uh, and a show that I love a great deal, uh, You're the Worst, which is coming to an end this year as well. All shows that I think are are very, very good and all were kind of shows that had a small but dedicated audience for the most part and really came to define the potentials of an era in which no one really knows what's going to be successful. So they'll just take a chance on anything and you end up with some really great stuff. Uh, And also the Big Bang Theory is ending this year after 14 seasons. 
What the fuck? Making it tied for, I believe, tied for the longest-running live-action sitcom in American history with, I think it's called The Adventures of Ozzy and Harriet, which is like a show that aired in the 60s. And, unbelievably, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, (laughs) which um, will probably, is definitely coming back at least for one more season this year and will probably be coming back for more because... Who wants to tie that record? You want to hold the record. You you want to be the show that started when three friends just filmed themselves until they had a pilot and mm-hmm. somehow became the longest running live sitcom in American history. Yeah, I've just finished the latest season, which I watched in two goes and just hammered it straight through. That is an astonishing accomplishment, what they pulled off in that season. Mm, that last episode in particular, like the way it ends is... Yeah, people people should just watch it. It's just just indescribable. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's it. I think that's television. That's television done for. That's television. That's number one. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of of stuff coming out over the next 12 months that I'm really excited to see. The new stuff, obviously, is uh, tantalising, but I I am really curious. Even though I wasn't a massive fan of the last season of Game of Thrones, I'm really really excited to see just how they wrap that thing up <laughs> because mm. boy they've got a lot of things to to work through even though they are now they've been burning through plot at a ridiculous pace since they no longer had to worry about the books mm. yeah I, I actually completely forgot that there's a book involved in this mm. yeah They're like just do you think that george rr R. martin would just like silently just stop mentioning it <laughs> Mm. And then just be, yeah, be like, I don't need to. It's been done now. Yeah. Uh, or he'll just continue doing what he seems to be doing, which is just being like, oh, I'll write prequels and stuff that just explains the law and mm. nothing to do with the actual <laughs> plot of the book as I wrote it. Because at a certain point, it did overtake him in a major way. Like that, that whole multimedia franchise has become far bigger than the books they inspired it, even though the books themselves were already, like, very, very popular. Mm, yeah, totally. So we end this episode as we end all our episodes with Shot vs. Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Matt, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? I'm going I'm to recommend something pretty obvious. Uh, everyone's talking about it. It's trending on Twitter mm. uh, as we speak. Uh, it's the um, Netflix documentary Fire... Uh, subtitle the greatest party that never happened yeah uh, which most people know what it is there was a festival um um hosted by some uh people and it kind of went wrong and became notorious for a lot of reasons many of them tied into a cheese sandwich um and i'm being deliberately kind of obtuse about the details because uh, i spoke to someone today i recommended it to someone today who had no idea of the story at all and I think that's probably best if you go in not knowing anything or if you just know, oh, vaguely there was a exclusive type music festival that kind of went tits up. It's best just to go in and enjoy it and enjoy it. I, you will do it because whilst it is a kind of a mad story of, you know, some pretty heavy crimes being committed, um, <laughs> there is a certain level of schadenfreude, which is uh, hugely enjoyable uh, on one level. And even the people who come out of it badly are like, yeah, they'll probably be all right. <laughs> that's fine. Um, you know, and that's also highlighted by the fact that, you know, the thing that Netflix won't tell you is that 
the, the 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 Netflix documentary itself is made by some of the perpetrators of these crimes, mm. or people who are definitely complicit, yeah. uh, should we say, who managed to kind of brush that off and uh, move on fairly quickly in their section of the film. Um, but yes, I'm going to recommend Fire. Please watch it. It is well worth a watch. Your um, you will need to suspend your disbelief that this actually happened in real life, but luckily everyone has camera phones and social media, so we know it definitely did. Um, mm. But yeah, it's on Netflix. It'll pop up on the algorithm first thing. It's they're shouting about it a lot, but um, yeah, do it. Yeah, I'll second that. It's very entertaining, and to quote the uh, critic Jake Cole, if you showed that documentary to someone and said this is the third season of American Vandal people would not be able to tell the difference. Like <laughs> it's such a utterly bizarre story of complete hubris and incompet- incompetence playing out on a truly colossal scale. And mm. it really is uh, quite a sight to behold ethical qualms aside about <laughs> the people who produced it, because um, even if they did produce it, they don't come off well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. Uh, the, 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 there's limits to how much you can massage that. Mm, yeah, yeah. I'm going to recommend a movie that uh, came out last year and has largely been snubbed from the awards discussion, which is a terrible shame because I thought it was absolutely brilliant and one of the best movies of last year. It's Deborah Granick's Leave No Trace, which mm. is a, a story about a young girl played by Thomasin McKenzie who lives kind of off the grid with her father, played by Ben Foster, who's an actor uh, I'd love. I love him in everything. And in this movie, I think he plays a more restrained version of something he's he does in the past. Like, he can be a very big and intense actor, and this is very... As, as a man who's dealing with deep-seated traumas, who has basically decided to remove himself and his daughter from society... Uh, as a kind of a form of protection is constantly on the move uh, and whose lives are then kind of altered considerably when they are forced to interact with society more fully you know like when child protective services come in and say hey maybe you should live in a house Mm -hmm. Uh, this seems like a bad situation for you to be in And, and a lot of the movie plays out in the tension between what is best for the daughter and what is best for the father and the fact that Ultimately, those two things may prove to be irreconcilable. And Deborah Granick is a, a great humanist filmmaker. She made the movie uh, Winter's Bone uh, nine years ago, uh, which was her mm. last her last fiction movie, although she made a documentary in between then called Stray Dog, which is also very good. And it's uh, it made me hope that she makes as many movies as possible because I think she is such a wonderful... She has such a wonderful intuitive grasp of... The, of what makes people ticks. She gets great performances out of people. She is just a, a consummate uh, director. She's just, every aspect of her films just chimes with every other aspect so well. And it just combines for something that is really affecting and uh, a journey that is well worth taking. So the Oscars may have snubbed it. Well, we don't know if they've snubbed it, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a guess. They've <laughs> so, snubbed it, come on. Although I'll say maybe adapted screenplay. Let's mm. like like that. I could see it maybe creeping in there, but otherwise, um, yeah, it may get completely shut out. But even if they do, you shouldn't. It is a great, great movie, and everyone should go and see it. 
or mm. watch it watch it at home it's probably on prime uh, because i think it's a, an amazon production so yes leave no trace if you've enjoyed this episode of the show then please subscribe to us on stitcher player fm itunes all the usual places leave us a review raters and recommend it to your friends that's the best way to help us grow our audience you can also find us on facebook and twitter where we are at srs underscore podcast we'll be back next week with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me <laughs> <laughs>